Yo, this is Sam Yunin. I had a fascinating opportunity to interview producer Steve Gamester and historian James Holland, just two of the gentlemen behind Hunting Nazi Treasure, an eight-part TV series premiering on October 24 at 10 p.m. on the History Channel. Hunting Nazi Treasure is an investigative series taking viewers on a heroic search across four continents to locate valuable objects and artwork missing since the Second World War and return them to the rightful owners. Turns out the Allies defeating Hitler was not really the end of World War II. We can't just go back to normal. Think of Hunting Nazi Treasure as a spiritual sequel to The Monuments Men, the movie with George Clooney, Bill Murray, all those dudes. The Hunting Nazi Treasure team is led by Robert Edsel, author of best-selling book turned movie, The Monuments Men, and founder and chairman of the Monuments Men Foundation for the Preservation of Art. As you'll see in the series, they do some really cool work. Investigative journalist Connor Woodman and Second World War historian James Holland are the other characters viewers will engage. Hunting Nazi Treasure is a captivating adventure, an attempt to bring some closure to yet another painful chapter from World War II. Here's my interview with Steve and James. Live from the center of the earth, girth. Thank you, gentlemen, uh, for hanging out and uh, talking about uh, Nazis and World War II and uh, art. And uh, we got a lot to cover because uh, you are you guys are busy hunting Nazi treasure. So that's kind of a cool occupation, kind of a cool gig. Uh, so introduce yourselves. I'll start with you. Sure. I'm Steve Gamester. I'm the producer of uh, the series Hunting Nazi Treasure. Uh, and I'm James Holland. I'm a historian of World War II, and I'm, I'm one of the presenters, one of three. I want to start off with World War II. What kind of like sparked that kind of fascination or that kind of interest in World War II? You've written some books as well. Uh, you guys have a huge interest, obviously, not just doing the show, but just personally outside of that too. Well, for me, um, it was the, the human drama of, of World War II. I think for all the major competent nations, there was no greater experience of human drama than that. I mean, it affected the lives of every man, woman, and child of all the major competent nations and unclear Canada in that, in a way that no other conflict ever has done. And, uh, but then, you know, you, so you start talking to veterans, you start talking to people who live through it, you start reading around it. And then the more you get into it, the more you're interested about the nuts and bolts and the kind of bit more detail about it. And, you know, it just seems so fantastical, I think, you know, when you can sort of just get on the train and go to Paris or fly to Berlin for a weekend and, you know, you're completely free. It's a very liberal place, Europe these days, for the most part. And it just seems so fantastical that not so long ago, in a pinprick of time, really, in the big scheme of things, you know, this place was a totalitarian state run by a monstrous regime like the Nazis. And, um, that is fascinating and the, and the and the quest and the and the crusade to rid the world of nazism and hitler and you know that 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 was a great enterprise and um it's just enduringly fascinating i think does having a british background that does that kind of like color or kind of give you a little bit more perspective because like, we were a little bit further removed in terms of canada well you might be over here in the uh, the other side of the atlantic but the canadian input into the second world war was was absolutely enormous and um you know canada massively punched above its weight during world war ii not just in terms of kind of troops on the ground but let's face it you know you had troops in sicily you had troops in italy you had troops from d-day onwards you had troops in southeast england from end of 1939 beginning of 1940 onwards uh, sorry end of 1940 rather canadian navy massively punched above its weight there wasn't a single squadron uh, literally in the whole raf that didn't have kind of you know um, a Canadian through its ranks at some point. So, um, the, you know, 
Canada really, really made a massive contribution to the eventual Allied victory in, in, in the West and in the war against Nazi Germany. Nice. Well done, Canada. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 11 points out of 10, I'd say. There we go. And your interest, sir? Well, I mean, it's a lot of the same stuff as James. I mean, you know, the Second World War, we can't get away from it, really, can we? I mean, in many ways, the world that we live in, the institutions that govern us um, on the international stage, whether it be the United Nations or the IMF or the sort of world power balance, all of that came out of the Second World War. I mean, it's such a massive event in our history. I and history is 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 my primary interest. Um, so it's it's kind of hard to avoid the Second World War when that is a primary interest. And it is, I think, you know, James said it's the human element, and it it, it really is. I, I mean, both my parents were born during the Second World War. Some of my relatives further back fought in the Second World War, and you realize very quickly when you start studying the Second World War and trying to tell stories that it is a huge tapestry of individual experiences, most of them tragic. You know, the numbers of people who died, who were misplaced, um, is without parallel in history when it comes to warfare. Oh, it's a the biggest movement of peoples the world has ever known. And it's it's the the legacy of it today. I mean, the way borders were drawn um, following the first and the second world war has an impact on geopolitics today. Yeah, I mean, uh, I the international banking system that set up was was set up in the wake of the, of the second world war. It's a theme within the show too, because it's like you're still trying to return some of the the paintings and some of the artwork and things like that from that era. And again, it's just kind of the way sometimes history is taught, where it's like Hitler rose to power, he kind of conquered a few countries, and then he the was allies, quite bad. Yeah, he the allies got, got in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And it's like then the allies kind of come, and then he's defeated, and then it almost kind of quote unquote goes back to normal. But like you're saying, Steve, it doesn't quite go back to normal, and it's like there's this huge legacy and all these kind of loose threads that kind of have to be addressed. Yeah, and the and and the missing artwork. I mean, one of the lines that um, we we frequently use in describing the show in terms of why why we should still be looking for this stuff is that in many ways, these missing works of art are the last prisoners of the Nazis. You know, we are um, right now living through a time when the last sort of people who fought in that war are in their 90s and will be passing away. And that living connection to that time will be lost. Um, so it's important to continue to tell these stories and understand how we fell into that tragedy, into that catastrophe, to try and avoid doing something like that again. And, you know, in all wars, culture, art is often a target. We see that in what ISIS has been doing in, in Syria and destroying historic sites and destroying monuments. These become targets to try and erase people and erase memory to impose your will on people. So to defend against that is a worthy cause. And it's part of what the series is about. And in the first episode, you kind of touch also upon Hitler's background, his artistic background, which is, again, like just the way that Hitler is kind of being portrayed through throughout history. Obviously, all his other evil kind of overshadows anything he did before that. But he was he did have a kind of an artistic background. Can you comment on that? And like, yeah. kind of like, because I know he tried to get into the art school and he couldn't do it. So yeah, I mean it's interesting. There's a scene uh, I think um, in that first episode of the Hitler one where you uh, where Robert Edsel, one of the presenters, is is looking at some of Hitler's watercolors and they're kind of 
they're just old school. They're old fashioned. They're kind of technically quite good, but there's just no soul to them whatsoever. They're, they're emotionally dead. There's no people in them, you know, and they're just a bit amateur and a bit, bit rubbish, frankly. But, but art and architecture is his great passion. That, that's what he really loves. Obviously, you know, he's ideologically driven. He's politically driven. But, but in terms of kind of downtime, what Adolf really likes is kind of thinking about art thinking about architecture, grand designs. I mean, you know, he has this grand design to kind of remodel Berlin as Germania with kind of huge, great edifices and all the rest of it. He's got a great plan to create the Führer Museum in Linz, his hometown in Austria, which is going to be magnificent. It's going to be a legacy forevermore, the thousand-year Reich, blah, blah, blah. You know, art is his big thing, and it's something that he spends a huge amount of time thinking about, a huge amount of time focusing on, and if he ever wants to kind of sort of relax or get away from kind of, you know, the hard toil of kind of trying to want to, to to run a global conflict. Um, that is what he's thinking about. But to do that, he's also pillaging from other people and stealing and trying to clamp down on other people's art. You know what he calls degenerate art, modern art. You know that is the way forward in, in the early part of the 20th century. You know Picasso, Salvador Dali, all these types. You know Chagall. They're all doing kind of you know amazing art, exciting, dramatic art. He doesn't want any of that. He wants to sort of go back to the old school. You know his his um his heroes are people who kind of you know were painting centuries earlier, and um. Yeah, you know, it's just it's just what it is without question one of the biggest, you know, heist jobs the world has ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, the show refers to it as crime scenes, like when you go to different locations. And again, it just shows the the size of World War II because you go to different cities, like you're collecting air miles. Right? Well, I know I think we overall we went to kind of four continents, 13 different countries. I mean, it was an epic journey that took us from kind of, you know, the snow of of St. Petersburg and Moscow down to the kind of, you know, the desert of southern Tunisia to kind of Santiago and Chile in South America. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, the size of the theft was was the reason for going to all those places, but I mean, in terms of that is very much something we wanted to do in this series was to make it relevant today by having people today go to these places. You know, we didn't want to be an armchair program where, you know, the sort of typical cliche of a World War II documentary where you'd have a bunch of people sitting in chairs talking and, you know, cue the black and white footage. It was important. We wanted to go to the places where these thefts occurred and to tell the history in a very active way. And follow um, the trails. I and mean, follow it's, the trails. It's, a, yeah. it's detective work. It's an investigation. I mean, you can't, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you have to go to these places to understand the majesty of some of these things. I mean, one of the stories that we tell is um, one of the most famous works of art, and it's, it seems strange to call it a work of art because it's a whole room, but one of the great mysteries of the 20th century was the theft of the Amber Room. The Amber Room is this entire room made of amber panels in St. Petersburg, well, outside of St. Petersburg in Russia. And it's in what was known as, well, what's still known as the Catherine Palace, which was, um, you know, one of the great palaces of the Russian czars. And the Germans, when they took over that palace, when they invaded the Soviet Union in 1941 and conquered that part just outside of St. Petersburg, they took the Amber Room and it hasn't been seen since. But to fully really understand the majesty of that place in that room, you kind of got to stand there. You know, it's, it's like trying to describe to someone the brilliance of Michelangelo and never looking up at the roof of the Sistine Chapel. It's we are these 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 great works of art move people for a reason. There's a peop, the reason the Nazis wanted them because they represent genius. They represent human achievement. 
Um, so to understand why the theft occurred and why it's important to still look for them, we wanted to go to the places where this, these stories happened. It's also distressing to learn too, like when, uh, I think even in the first or second episode, when the allies are getting closer, they start to destroy stuff or they start to throw it into the river and those kind of things. And it's like just to lose some of that stuff too. It's almost, I don't know, selfishness is not, I wish it was a stronger word, but it's like if we can't have it, nobody else can have it. And that again is like what you're talking about, like just to lose that kind of spirit, that kind of inspiration is like, that's that's upsetting as well because you can't get those things back. Well, the Nazis famously had uh, what was known as a scorched earth campaign. Hitler ordered it himself. As German troops retreated, Mm -hmm. their job was to destroy everything, to leave nothing. The Nero decree? Exactly. The Nero decree, precisely. I think that tendency always exists in times of conflict. And, uh, you know, it's, of course, you know, these are material items, which are important, but of course that extends to human life as well. So, you know, it's, 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 it's touching upon all these subjects and, and, and how to guard against it. The show focuses on returning these objects uh, to the families or to the widows and whoever's left at this point. Do people want, some of them want this stuff back or are they happy to just kind of close this chapter in their life and kind of move on? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think there's the experiences. There's a bit of both, to be perfectly honest. There's some that will kind of fight two for now and have been fighting very, very hard. I mean, there are there's a there's a set of four miniatures which are returned to one of the family from um, Jacques uh, Hausticker, who had been a Dutch art dealer, uh, and you know it, it was it's an unbelievably touching scene when when you know she talks about that and talks about what it means to her having those pictures back. But you know, for others, that it's the distance of time is too great, and they've never had them anyway. It's always been you know distant relatives, and you know sometimes they are happy to hand them back and give them back to the country or whatever. And sometimes, you know, in the case of one item that um, we see the recovery in the series, we did track down the original owner, and he wanted it to go to a museum. You know, he felt that. Uh, it would be more powerful that way. People would be able to enjoy it. But not only that, the, that work of art could be put into context and people could forever would see that it was stolen by the Nazis in the Second World War and understand that story. You know, there's a lot of pain behind yeah. these stories. We met um, one of uh, our other investigators, Connor Woodman, interviewed an American woman who was the daughter of um, a big uh, diamond merchant in Paris, a Jewish family that was forced to flee Paris. And when they came back, their apartment was completely empty. And she was quite hesitant at first. She wasn't sure she wanted to participate because exactly that, you know, it's kind of dredging up all these really painful memories about history and, and my family. And I'm not really sure I want to do that. But I think, you know, in the end, she decided that, um, you know, some good out of what her family went through would be to tell that story. Um, it's kind of the responsibility we all share, I think, with history. History's not pretty. You know, it's not, it's not all, you know, uh, you know, puppies and rainbows. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it can be ugly at times, but um, that's why it's worthwhile of our study. And we have, all have a responsibility, I think, to face it rather than running away from it. You touched on the art galleries. Like, how does the art world kind of react? Or do, are certain paintings flagged so that they suddenly appear on the market that they know this is something for left over from World War II or that should be investigated or are kind of like auction houses and things like that turning a blind eye? 
Well, I think auction houses, when they sell art, they always want to know what the provenance is. And the provenance always goes back. You know, that, that is how you, um, the provenance is how you verify that it is what it is. And, you know, a Sotheby's or a Christie's or whoever it might be, if they get across a piece of art and they know that there's this sort of missing gap and its provenance between 1939 and 1945. The spider sense goes off. Yeah, you know, the senses go off and, and you know, it's time to kind of investigate that. And, you know, the whole art world, no no one wants to be kind of dealing in stolen goods. I mean, they want everyone wants the provenance to be true and good and, and proper. So, you know, and that is, of course, exactly how these things do suddenly reemerge because what's happened is, you know, it's been stolen by the Nazis. At the end of the war, it's picked up by an American soldier. The American soldier rolls it up, takes it home, sends it home, hangs in his in his house for, then he dies. Then the next generation decide that they need a bit of money, so they're going to sell it. So they take it on, they go, well, I think this is a Renoir. And they take it on, they go, hang on a minute. And it suddenly it's back on the market again. And everyone goes, oh, we haven't seen that since 1943. And suddenly it's on the it's on the system again. Um, and so that's how these things do reemerge. Or suddenly you have this bizarre situation where you have Cornelius um, Gurlitt, who's acting suspiciously, um, in, you know, uh, and, and suddenly he's investigated for tax evasion. Police turn up on a dawn raid to kind of get documents and discover not documents of tax evasion, but discover 1,200 works of art that have been missing since the Second World War. Yeah. What surprised you? Did stories like that kind of surprise you and shock you, or were you expecting those kind of things? Well, I think from my point of view, I was less surprised by the art world because, you know, thanks to Robert Edsel's book, The Monuments Man, which I'd read and, and the film and so on, you know, I was aware of all that. Um, but what surprised me more was, you know, the systematic cleaning out of, of properties. So, you know, in there were tens of thousands of Jewish properties in Paris, for example, and um, a very, very small German unit was sent to Paris with the collaboration of the French, cleared out every single one of those homes and apartments. I mean, and we're not talking tables and chairs, we're talking about literally everything right down to the fixtures and fittings. The scale of that thievery was just absolutely mind-boggling. And, you know, I was lucky enough while I was out there and we filmed it, uh, we interviewed a guy who'd, who'd been... Um, who'd worked in the resistance got caught claimed he was only half jewish in fact he was completely jewish and so got put in the internment camp at Drancy and was embroiled into working into uh coerced into working to clear these properties and one of the times he was you know he was shifting a box and it was his family's apartment wow um and he realized that his fa his family had at that point he realized they must have been rounded up and sent east which indeed they had been and they all died at auschwitz he was later outed and, and then sent to Auschwitz and eventually survived and was liberated from, from Buchenwald, actually having been marched from, from Auschwitz to Buchenwald and was survived only by a blood transfusion given to him by, a, by an American serviceman. Wow. Um, and, and there he was. But I mean, imagine the shock of kind of, you know, you're, you're clearing up all this stuff and you suddenly see your own family belongings already boxed up, you know, at the behest of the Nazis. I mean, you, it, it's, it's like a rape, isn't it? Yeah. It's really hard. It's horrific. Yeah, it's hard to... Con like, again, this show is great because it kind of gives you that window into that world, but it's just because so much time has passed and it's hard for us to fully understand. And this is kind of what you were alluding to, Steve, in terms of like how the past, you kind of want to keep that past alive so that you know and you don't forget these things happen and people had these experiences and that we hope that future people don't have these experiences. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's ultimately what we try and do. I, you know, I've led a very sheltered life. Yeah. <laughs> I was born in Canada in 1975. And, um, 
you know, uh, our country during that time, there have been people who've, who've been off to fight in wars, but, you know, by and large, it's been a really easy ride. Um, that's a miracle in human history. You know, the, the, the truth is that throughout history and, and through in many places around the world today, uh, things are a hell of a lot tougher and there's a lot of tragedy, a lot of hardship. And I think, you know, the further you are separated from those realities, when they just kind of become the noise that you see on the evening news or, you know, things that politicians argue over or jockey over or whatever, the less removed you are that those from those things actually happening. Um, and I think that is one of the th- important things about history. And as the last sort of survivors and people who were part of the Second World War pass on, it becomes even harder, I think, to remind people that we never want to experience something like that again. It was horrific and it was horrible. And it's uh, left a legacy that we're still talking about today. So, you know, this series, you know, one of the things you'll often hear is, oh my goodness, do we really need another series about the Second World War? And I have some sympathy for that because there are certainly lots of different types of history that don't don't receive nearly as much attention as they do. But I do think that the Second World War is a constant reminder of the moral choices we all face as human beings. And wanting to be on the right side of those choices is fundamentally important. That's a good, that's a good way to end it there. It's, it's eight parts. Is it going to, if there's audience that are craving for more episodes, is there a possibility of like going longer or is it going to stay at eight or what's the plan? Well, we'd love to make more episodes. So, Sammy, hopefully every one of your viewers watches or, or listeners watches and we'll, uh, We'd, we'd love to make some more. It's, it's an uh, endless October story. 24 at 10 p.m. on the History Channel. So it's the eight-part series, Hunting Nazi Treasure. Thank you, gentlemen, for taking some time and uh, kind of going down the, uh, the dark path of history. So thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.